asked me to come and speak this morning, uh, I thought originally it was because last Sunday was so emotionally for all of us, he wasn't sure he was going to be emotionally really kind of together, you know. And then I realized, because he and I spent the last three days in Yosemite with Mark, that uh, we were off the grid. And he didn't have time to prepare. And so it was on me to come and be ready. So here we are. Save the day. There you go. I don't know about that. So let's pray together. Can we do that? And we just want to begin uh, by giving thanks for the ministry that Max and Maggie and Marie had. And then ask God's blessing on our time together this morning. Lord, it is exciting for us to hear reports of those who have gone out in ministry and service and to have them come back and share with us that you've been at work, that you've been busy, that you were accomplishing your purposes both in and through them. And we're grateful for lives of young people and children that were touched, lives of those who made professions of faith and came to put their trust and their faith in Jesus. We're grateful for young people whose lives were impacted through the ministry of three of our children church family, that they've been encouraged and strengthened in in the fact that God can use them even at the age of 15 or 16, that God wants to accomplish greatness for his kingdom through them. So we give you thanks for all of that, and as we pause this morning in this moment, Lord, our simple prayer is that you would meet us here in this place. That's always my hope, that Lord, you'd be here, that you would meet us here in this place. Give us a sense of your presence. Give us a sense of your spirit. And it's been mentioned at least twice already this morning. We are so dependent on the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as Chewy encouraged us earlier to be hearers of the word, to build our lives on solid rock, not on shifting sand. Give us hearts this morning, not simply to hear, but to do, to obey. That's our simple prayers we ask together in Jesus' name. Amen. It was several years ago that our neighbor Paula came to our house banging on the door, begging us to quickly come and answer. And as we came to the door, Paula told us she'd been out for a walk that afternoon. Her husband Steve was away on a business trip, not expected back until later at night. She didn't know what to do. She'd come back from a long walk, and as she approached her house, she saw shadow and movement inside her house where nobody was supposed to be. And she ran over to our house, banging on the door, and I, of course, called the Laverne Police Department and explained the situation to them, and their response to me was this, help is on the way. And within just a few moments, two police cars pulled up, Two of Laverne's finest jumped out and we explained the situation to them and with weapons drawn they entered the house exclaiming in loud enough voices that we could hear them outside on the sidewalk, Laverne Police Department, if you're in this house, come out with your hands up. They said that two or three times and just a few minutes later they came out of the house escorting a tall, bearded man and Paula screamed, that's my husband! Yeah, that was embarrassing for Paula, and I'm hoping she's not watching this morning. But you know, it's always encouraging to hear the words, help is on the way. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you needed to know that help was on the way. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, wanting to know that help was on the way. We went to Yosemite, Mark and Rick and I, this week, and we got up there and we set up our tents and we're unpacking all the food. And we've got lettuce and tomato. We've got hamburger buns, hot dog buns. We've got cereal for breakfast. And Rick goes, do you remember the old Wendy's commercial? Come on, what was that great classic line from the old So, Rick's going, where's all of our meat? Dude, I, I bought this special meat for lunch tomorrow. Not here. I bought these really good Angus burgers. They're not here. And there's no meat. Left it at home. And Mark and I were hoping that help was on the way. Sadly... That meat's now all gone. Somebody else ate it. Help was not on the way. Well, you know, there are other stores. It's always encouraging to know that help is on the way. And you and I are living in a climate where we need confidence that help is on the way. We have this pandemic thing. We have the emotional fears and anxieties. 
we have the concerns for people that we love and care about that they might contract this, this disease. Um, it, the dynamics of it are so far-reaching. Loss of jobs, loss of income, uh, loss of health, loss of relationships. Aside from a few video calls with my grandchildren and my son and his family back in North Carolina, a couple of video calls with my wife and my grandsons here in Chino, we, we have no connection, no relationship. It's awful. I hate it. Anyone else hate it? I get one hand weakly raised in the back. I hate this situation. I don't like it at all. And then you add to this pandemic situation, we got all this rioting, Black Lives Matter, yes they do, and all the looting. We are living in a time when we need to know those three words, or five words. Help is on the way. And our world was shaken last Sunday morning when Pastor Rick stood here and uh, told us that he and Brenda were returning to Philadelphia. That shook our world, right? You know, we've grown to love them and appreciate them and their ministry, uh, especially Brenda. I'm going to miss her a lot. Um, (laughs) Even though she she ate all the meat we left behind. Uh, I love you anyway. But this is a time where we need to know help is on the way. That's a message that, that we need to hear. Help is on the way. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in mine. I know what collectively is going on in our lives with that announcement last Sunday. Help is on the way. And I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the 54th Psalm. 5-4. The 54th Psalm. David wrote this psalm and has left us with some intriguing, challenging, exciting lessons that we need to listen to this morning. And if you open your Bible to Psalm 54, there's a little paragraph above verse 1, probably in your Bible, very similar to mine. Mine has these words. For the choir director on stringed instruments... So this was, a, this was a song that David wrote for Max to play on his guitar, right? String instruments. A mascal of David. A mascal, that word mascal means teaching. This song is intended to teach us something this morning. This song that King David wrote in the context it says of when the Ziphites came out and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? We're going to talk about that. But David wrote this psalm, and it's intended to teach us something this morning. Are you ready to learn what God has for us this morning? Chewy, talk to us. Really, I just love what Chewy shared. It fits so well. You know, we're going to build on that solid foundation. And God's Word is what we need to be paying attention to. He has a lesson for us. So there's three paragraphs in this short little psalm. Seven verses, three paragraphs. Pay attention now to the first three verses, paragraph number one. What is David doing in these three verses? What is David saying? Summarize it in, you know, that elevator speech. Two floors. What's David saying here? Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. What is David saying here? What is he saying? He is crying out. That's exactly what I wrote down here. His cry as he cries for help. David is looking out his life circumstances that we're going to talk about in detail in a few minutes. He's looking out in his life circumstances. He's on the run from King Saul. His life is in danger. He's looking outward, and how does he respond? He cries out to God. And what's his cry out to God for? Help. Save me. Vindicate me. Uh, He talks about, uh, my translation uses the word violent men. That's the word powerful. Someone who is in a position to oppress others. And so David cries out for help as he looks out around him and looks at his life circumstances. Now what's David do? Behold. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. 
He will recompense the evil of my fo- to my foes. He will destroy them. Destroy them in your faithfulness. What is David doing here? He has looked out at his circumstances and he cries out for help. Now what's he doing? He's looking up. And his, con- his cry for help changes to confidence in a powerful God. He has confidence that God will do what? Help him. He cries out for help and his confidence is what? Lord, you are my helper. (laughs) You need to know this morning, beyond a shadow of a doubt, without any question in your your spirit, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, you need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is our helper. He's our helper. I don't know about you, but I need a lot of help. I need a lot of help. I'm glad that God's my helper. So, the first paragraph, verses 1 to 3, his cry as he looks out, crying out for help. The second paragraph, verses 4 to 6, his confidence as he looks up, God's my helper. And then the final verse, our third paragraph, or verses 6 and 7, Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all my trouble. And my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. So what's he saying in these three verses, two verses? What's he saying? Cries out for help. He has confidence that God's going to help him. Now what? He's thankful. His commitment to praise God for his help. And I would suggest to you this morning that whatever the circumstances in life that we face, whether they're personal, whether it's my family, or whether it's our church family, we need to cry out for help, looking at the circumstances. We don't, we don't like the circumstances. We wish that the circumstances weren't what they are, but they are. And we cry out for help, and we have confidence that what? God will help us. He'll be our sustainer. By the way, he's going to do that for Rick and Brenda as they go back to Philadelphia. He's going to be their help. He's going to be their sustainer. And as they go back, as they look for opportunities for ministry, opportunities for service, God's going to help them. My prayer for them has been that God will lead them and direct them to the exact spot of ministry that God's been preparing them for. It's there. I don't know what it is. Rick doesn't have a clue. I don't think. We've talked about some options and some ideas, but God's going to be your helper. It's His promise. We all need God's help. We cry out for help. We have confidence that He's going to help us, and then our commitment is to praise Him and thank Him for His help. And I can close right there in prayer, but I want to walk you through what David's life experience was. So if you take your Bible now and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, we're going to quickly fly through 13 chapters. And so you're going to want to kind of get your finger loosened up, do some finger exercises, and, and kind of get ready to do this. In 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Um, I've never made it all the way through 1 Samuel. I, I remember teaching my junior hires back in 1971, partially through the book of 1 Samuel, and then I got moved into college ministry and never finished. But 1 Samuel is an amazing book. And I love this section because it's the life of David. This is the life of David before he takes the throne and becomes the king. This is the life of David prior to his reigning as that significant king of Israel. In chapter 17, he's killed Goliath. And you remember the challenge of Goliath. And nobody wanted to face that big dude. But David did. David trusted God. David said, let me have him. You come out here and taunt the armies of the living God, you're done, you're toast. I love that story. Following that story in chapter 17, of course, is chapter 18. In chapter 18, uh, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, the preemptive heir to the throne, by the way, Jonathan and David become the best of friends. And in verse 7, as David returns from killing the giant, as they return from the defeat of the Philistines, the women sang as they played. And they said this, 
Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousand. If you were king and you heard those words, what would your first reaction be? Just like Saul's. Next verse says Saul became very angry. Displeasing, this saying displeased him. Saul, verse 9 says, looked on David with suspicion from that day on. David twice avoids Saul throwing a spear at him with the intention of pinning him to a wall and killing him. At least twice, I think actually it was three times, but there's some conversation among Bible students about that. David now is on the run, hunted and hounded by the king. The king who has his armies, his troops, and David is on the run. And and Saul is actually very clever. He tries to entice David to go out and to return with proof that he's killed 100 Philistines. And if he would do that, Saul would give David his daughter in marriage. And Saul's intention was that David would go out and get, get killed. That didn't happen. So that didn't happen. So as you keep reading in chapter, in chapter 18, going into chapter 19, Saul has these schemes. He's sending people to watch David. In verse 11 of chapter 19, he sends messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death. If you were to go through these chapters, by the way, and just mark the word death and die, those words are repeated over and over again. Saul is on a mission. He wants David dead. And David's on the run. David runs to the wilderness. He runs into the forest. David is on in movement. Running, moving, hiding. David even goes to King Achish in the city of Gath. A Philistine. Philistine city, a Philistine king. And when he goes to Gath to King Achish... He pretends that he's insane. Because he he wants to get away from Saul, and his solution is to go hang out with the Philistines who are Saul's enemies. Does that make sense? Absolutely. But they're also David's enemies, so what does he do? Pretends he's crazy. He's scrawling and scribbling on the walls like a four-year-old. He's dribbling and slobbering in his beard. And King Achish says to his his court, Why do you bring me this madman? Don't I have enough madmen around me already? David's desperate. David is desperate. He is running, and there's no place to hide. And as you scan these chapters, you're struck with the fact that David is in deep trouble. You scan these chapters, and you realize at the end of, or the middle of chapter 23, in verse 14, it says, Saul sought him every day but God did not deliver him into his hand every single day can you imagine being on the run for your life every day not knowing who you can trust not knowing who you can have confidence in David was betrayed by I think family members if I read the text carefully that's my opinion he was betrayed by others that he trusted David's in desperate situations. In fact, in verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 26, I know you guys are having a hard time following this because I'm trying to cover all this stuff. In verse 26 of chapter 23, it says, David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. As you read through these chapters, David is collecting men who are coming to him. He starts off with a few hundred. He finally has 600 men. These men are not the cream of the crop. These men are not expert soldiers. These men are deserters. They're in debt. They have all kinds of issues and problems. As Pastor Rick often says, his issues have issues. These guys' issues that had issues also had issues. And so David has 600 men. Saul has 3,000. I'm not really good with math, but 5 times 6 is... 30, so Saul's army is five times more than David's, and they're surrounded. So what are their odds, what are David's odds of escape and rescue when he's surrounded by an army of 3,000 men? Well, his odds are really good because guess what? 
God's in control. And so he's surrounded. And then verse 27, one of my favorite words in the Bible, and it's easy to remember, is the word but. But. (laughs) They're surrounded. But. A messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David. David is in an awful situation. On the run. I'm not sure how long this went on. But my guess is, as I try to read through this carefully and kind of piece time sequences, is that this went on for a minimum of three and maybe four years and maybe longer. On the run. Every day. Chased by Saul and his army. Can you imagine what that would be like? I cannot, I cannot get my head around that. Every day. Running, hiding, and moving. Desperate situation. That's, that's the situation that David was in. And according to Psalm 54, what did he do? Lord, help me. Save me. Vindicate me. Cried out to God. And so as I think about the situation David is in, the second thing that impressed me is this. The strategy that he employed while Saul's trying to kill him. He keeps running. Forest, wilderness, wilderness, Philistines. He's constantly running. That's his strategy. He also gathers followers, supporters, those who will come alongside and help and support him. That's a good strategy. It'd be nice if he could find some good quality people instead of the dregs of society that he had. (laughs) He makes some very practical decisions. Two decisions he makes in these chapters. Um, One, of course, was pretending to be crazy with King Achish. That probably spared his life in that situation. One of the other practical decisions he makes that I really, really found myself drawn to is his parents came to him while he was running. And he had them escorted and removed geographically beyond Saul's reach. So he's gathering followers, he's making practical decisions, and he acts out of desperation, pretending to be mad. Going and aligning himself with the Philistines, their enemy. David is desperate. And so all of his strategies... All of the things that David tried to do to respond to the situation he was in, the decisions he made, the choices he made, the places he ran to, the things that he did, all they accomplished was continue to run. Just keep running. Keep going. You can run, but you can't hide. His strategies, his best plans, his best use of the, the resources he had available to him, his own mind, the followers he had, all those resources, he's still running, still going. Can't get away. Not a good situation. Not a place I would want to be. So, his situation is desperate. His strategies all fail. And finally, he experiences salvation. His situation, his strategy, and his salvation, if you like my alliterated outline there. So his salvation, his deliverance from this nightmare experience of running for his life, was solved by whom? By whom? Not by David. His strategies all failed. His strategies were ineffective. But God stepped in, and when his army, and his group of guys was surrounded by Saul's 3,000, God's the one that called Saul and his armies away. So David had a desperate situation. His strategies failed, but God rescued him. There's a bunch of lessons in there for us, right? And Psalm 54 was the result of that life experience. I don't know if you're in the habit of journaling. Most of us aren't. I've had periods of my life where I've journaled. But probably one of the most significant things that happens in the life of a follower of Jesus is as you journey through life and you journey through these times of desperation and struggle and hardship and difficulty is if you are writing and making notes and talking talking to yourself and reminding yourself of what God has done, it's a wonderful thing to be able to come back years later 
and to read what you wrote. My wife does this from time to time, not always. At least she does it always, I don't know about it yet. <laughs> but my wife has done this from time to time, and it's been fascinating to go back and read. And that's what Psalm 54 is for us. We look at Psalm 54, and we see the response of David, and we learn at least three life lessons that I want to lay before you this morning. There's many more. It would be a fun conversation to sit around a table with a group of a half a dozen of us and talk about this and talk about life lessons that are here. The first life lesson that I discover in these verses is not new to you. It's certainly not new to any of us. Difficulties in life are real and we should expect them. And Chewie kind of addressed that earlier when he was sharing with us. Right on target, man. Yo, what? The problem with life is what? It is so daily. That's the problem. And every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year, we experience challenges and difficulties. Or perhaps we ought to think of them as God's children, opportunities. That God presents us with challenges, difficulties that are opportunities. Opportunities for us to grow, Opportunities for us to mature. Opportunities to extend our ministry in the lives of other people. Um, when Maggie was talking earlier, she talked about some of the, the young gals that she was talking with. And she was able to identify with their life situation in part because of her life situation. She was able to engage them in their life situation because as a parent, she's had to deal with those situations with family. And so God gives us life experience, difficulties, hardship, danger, conflict, opposition. Because that's how we grow. That's how we mature. That's how we develop. And our response to those life difficulties and those life challenges ought to be, how should we be responding to those things? Psalm 54, cry out to the Lord. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. Lord, you're my helper. You're my sustainer. If you're not in this, I'm toast. That needs to be our response. That's why we have those passages of Scripture like Jeremiah 33.3. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you don't know. That's why we have passages like 1 Peter 5.7. Casting all of your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's why we have those passages. That's why we have Romans 8.28. God causes almost all things... No, what's it say? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who have been called according to His purpose. And if you keep reading in Romans 8, where it winds up is that God's plan and purpose in causing all those things to work together for good is to conform us to be more like Jesus. That's what God's up to in your life. That's what He's up to in my life. That's what He's up to with this pandemic. That's what He's up to with masks and gloves and sanitizer and everything else. What does He want to develop in your life? What qualities does He want to develop? I'd like to believe, my wife will tell you whether this is true or not, I'd like to believe I'm a little more compassionate today than I was five months ago. I'd like to believe that there's, I'm a little more patient today than I was five months ago. God is at work. And He uses pandemics. He uses riots. He uses all this stuff. He uses times of transition in churches. You know, Rick and Brenda are not the first pastoral couple to make a decision to change and leave a church. They're not the first, they won't be the last. I pastored in Sacramento for five years. For five years I said no to a ministry opportunity that was extended to me by a friend up the valley about an hour and a half in Modesto. And for five years I told him no, not interested. But after five years, I thought, you know, maybe that's what God wants me to do. And I made a change, transition. One of the hardest things I've ever done. One of the hardest decisions I've ever made. One of my best friends on the planet, one of my elders in the church in Sacramento, still a good friend. Tough, tough. 
I went to Modesto for five years. Had a period of minute. I went there, by the way, to start a Bible institute to train people for ministry. The goal was to establish a school and train lay people for ministry, train people to be missionaries and pastors. That was the dream that captured my heart and drug me away from Sacramento and made that transition happen. I went to Modesto with that dream, that vision, and the pastor's wife developed breast cancer, and I went in May and she died in October. Now all of a sudden everything changed in the church. The elders told my friend David, the pastor, take some time off. If it takes a year, we don't care. Take some time off. Go speak at Hume Lake. Do whatever God wants you. Just take some time off. Grieve, recover, whatever it is needed. And David's response was, I can't do that. How can I leave the church? And they said, well, you brought Roy here. You've known him for 15 years. You trust him. What's wrong with that? And everything changed. I, I never accomplished what I set out to do. Five years later, I left and went to Laverne. All these times of transition were all hard, they were all difficult, they were all uncomfortable, they were all a time of hardship and challenge. And what God wants to accomplish in Rick and Brenda's lives and in our lives is to cause us to grow, mature, change, develop, become more like Jesus. That's what He wants to do. It's as simple as that. So difficulties and hardships are coming, got to come, there might be more. And uh, we should expect that to happen. The second thought that impresses me as I look at the life of David in this psalm is not only that difficulty and danger are real, but that deception is always a reality and always possible. David's deception, at least part of his deception, was trusting himself. Part of David's deception was believing that his effort to do this, his effort to run here, all the things that he tried to do failed. His deception was a self-confidence and a self-trust before he finally cried out to God help and save me. It's easy to be deceived in times of difficulty, in times of challenge. It's easy. Pastor Rick told us last week, reminded us, something we already knew, but Pastor Rick reminded us last week that we have an enemy. He's like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he can devour. And his strategy and his plan in times of hardship and difficulty is to deceive us, to cause us to make plans, to make choices, to make decisions that we think makes sense and they're a deception for the evil one. Rick and I have had a conversation about this because one of the things that happens in times of transition, at least my, my life experience in my times of transition, it is a time when the evil one wants to come along and wants to bring deception. And it happens so easily and, and, and unless you're on guard, Proverbs says, guard your heart for out of it flow the issues of life. Unless you're on guard, you're in trouble. I remember one of my transitions. <laughs> I'm going to preach longer than Rick, so you're going to really miss him. Um, one of my transition times in my ministry, I had decided that I was going to go back to school, get further education, and I was going to teach in a seminary and train men to preach. Train them to teach the scriptures. That was my, I still have a little bit of a passion for that. But that was my dream. I was going to go back to school, get a speech communications major, and teach homiletics at a seminary. That was my dream. I went to a counseling center together with Andrea this time of transition. They specialized in helping couples transition, missionaries from the field, pastors. And long story short, after a couple of weeks of doing tests and exams and stuff and questionnaires in the mail, we finally went up to Oakland to their counseling center where the American Baptist had a counseling center at the time up there. We sat in personal interviews and conversation. And at the end of the week on Friday, the guy that we've been talking to mostly, the main guy, he says to me, Andrew is sitting next to me, and I get this picture. Andrew and I are sitting on one side of the desk, he's on the other. And he says to me, you know, after all of the things that we've talked about, all the things that we've studied, all, all the information we've gathered, 
You're, what I hear you telling us is that you want to go back to school and you want to teach uh, sermon prep homiletics at the seminary level. And I said, yeah, I, I kind of think that's what God wants. And he said, so... He says, you've always been a good student. School is never... He says, my guess is, for everything we've talked about, school is never a big deal. You just kind of coasted through school. You always had a B-plus average. didn't matter what you did. 3.5, 3.6... You know, you're always right there in that B-plus window. And it appears that it really didn't matter whether you studied really, really hard or did absolutely nothing. You always got a B-plus. And I'm kind of nodding and going to this program. Yeah, you're on track. He says, it also seems to me, from what we've talked about, is the school is not a fun place for you. And my guess is, whenever you had an opportunity to go do something different than schoolwork, you'd go do it. And Andrew started laughing. And the counselor dude turned to Andrea and said, what? Am I wrong? Have I totally missed it? She goes, no, 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 you're right on target. Roy's always off doing other stuff in school. When we were in high school, he, he learned how to run the 16-millimeter movie projector. So when a teacher wanted to show a movie, guess who they called out of class? So I'd go to this class or on the movie projector. You know, anything I could do to get out of class, I was gone. I was on the campus somewhere, you know. I wasn't at the beach like I wished. Um, and so he kind of joins in that and he says, So... He said, I have a question for you as you prepare to think about going back to school and being a seminary prof. And he said this to me. If school is not a fun place for you to be as a student, why do you think it'd be a fun place for you to be as a professor? And all of a sudden, all the pieces kind of went, yeah, that's the dumbest idea I've ever had. You see, it is a deception of the evil one for us to formulate ideas and plans that we think make sense, but they're not in step and they're not in tune with the will of God. I've been there. And Rick and I have had this conversation. Be on guard. We need to be on guard. We have an enemy who is out to fool, to deceive, to trick. He's going to do it. He's already doing it. Difficulties are to be expected. Deception is going to come. We need to be on guard. The third lesson that I learned, this is my favorite lesson, deliverance is certain. I can tell you're thrilled to hear those words. You're just sitting there. I'm going to say this again. Deliverance is certain. Brendan Ricker with me, thanks. We don't go fully with you, man. Gee. Deliverance is guaranteed. Why? Because of who our God is. He is our helper. He is our sustainer. And we respond as David did in Psalm 54 with praise and thanks and sacrifice and say, Thank you, Lord. Deliverance is certain. Um, He is more than able. Help is on the way. He says, I am able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that you ask or think. Deliverance is certain. So, we're going through difficult times. Right? Pandemic, right? These crazy riots and looting and all that crazy stuff, right? We're going through difficult times as a church family. We're going through a hard time. It's, it's going to be good. God's in control. Building oh, me up here. Our God is in control, and I want. You'll have to forgive me for this, but life is like riding a bicycle. Anybody ever ride a bicycle? Okay, just a few of us. Some are not admitting. Life is like riding a bicycle. I love riding my bike in the city of Irvine. The streets are all smooth. There's no cracks, no pothole. It's just beautiful streets. Where I live, streets are a mess. 
I pray every day that the city of Upland would be blessed with several billions of dollars they could fix their really crummy streets. Life is kind of like that. Sometimes you've got a nice smooth surface, it's all level, it's all good, and then sometimes it just is awful. And if you've ever ridden a bike, one of the things you experience on a bike ride is hills. What does the average person do when they're riding their bike and they see a hill in front of them? They pray? Is that what you said? They pray? Praying works for a while, but pretty soon you're climbing. So what most people do with that hill is they avoid it. They go around it. They turn around. Rick embraces that. No hill. We had one hill in Yosemite. You should have seen Rick going down that hill. Yeah, GMR. Hey, GMR. You'll have to ask uh, Ed about GMR. So life is like riding a bicycle. And when you ride a bicycle, you avoid hills. Why? They're tough. They're tough. They're hard. They are painful. They are difficult. They're a challenge. And it took me... 30 years of bike riding to believe and embrace this truth that my friend Don has tried to teach me and now I think has successfully communicated this truth. Hills are your friends. No, they're not. Hills are your friends. In fact, James says this in James chapter 1 and verses 2 and 4, 2, 3 and 4, James says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. Let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Phillips, in his paraphrase, says of those trials, Do not resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. I've written a poem. Someone's going to set it to music. I'm told that uh, this could be a good rap song. Hills are your friends, my friend. Hills are your friends. Downhill moves us along, my friend, but uphill makes us strong. Hills are your friends, my friend. Those are your friends. You see, the the strength that I have found in bike riding hasn't been from riding long distances. It's been from climbing GMR, Glendora Mountain Road up to Mount Baldwin. And the more that I've climbed that mountain, the stronger I've become. And now I can easily do those 50, 60, 100-mile bike rides because the hills are my friends. We want to avoid the hills. Not only are hills our friends, and the second verse of Roy's poem, <clears throat> you know what's coming. Winds are your friends, my friend. Winds are your friends. Tailwinds make us strong, my friend. But he- Tailwinds move us along, my friend. But headwinds do what? Make us strong. Now, I know headwinds make me strong, and I still hate them. Rick and I rode last Monday all the way up to Irwindale, to Huntington Drive and Irwindale Boulevard up there by the Rock Quarry. We had lunch at Farmer Boys. Rick's now a converted disciple to Farmer Boys and their chicken salad. And when we turned around after eating lunch and talking for a little bit, we battled 20 miles back here. My guess was probably 11, 12 plus or minus a mile an hour headwind. And it was fun, wasn't it, Rick? No, it wasn't. So, but one of the things that happens with winds, unlike hills, is if you're riding with somebody else into that headwind, if you're riding side by side, you're both experiencing that 12 mile an hour headwind. But as soon as Rick slips behind me, now I'm experiencing that 12 mile an hour headwind, and his energy output is reduced by one third. And 
And interestingly enough, my energy output is also affected by 6%. So we both benefit when he drafts behind me. And it would be nice once in a while if he would move in front, let me draft behind him, let me rest a little bit. That wouldn't be wise. (laughs) And so... When you face that strong wind of opposition in life, if you're by yourself into that 12 mile an hour headwind, it hurts, it's painful, it's hard. But if you have somebody with you that you can draft behind and take turns, all of a sudden that pain becomes manageable and bearable. We've been hearing a lot during this pandemic of we're in this together. Have you heard that? Anyone, anyone heard that? We're in this together thing? Yeah. Well, was your definition of togetherness describe what is happening in our country and in our culture today? You know, I hear that we're in this together thing and I go, really? Where, where's the evidence of that? Where's the proof of that? That we're in this together? It's crazy. And I want to suggest to you that as we face the hills and the headwinds that we're experiencing right now, pandemic, all that other stuff, but especially as a church family, as we're experiencing those hills, those headwinds, we need to be in this together, truly together, that there needs to be that sense of support. You know, when I ride with my friend Don, we take turns, and he rides in front of me for a while. But there, there, you have to be a cyclist to understand this. There is, it is impossible for me to describe what it's like to be in front, facing that wind for three or four miles, and then slipping behind the other guy. And it's just like all of a sudden, you can gear up to two more gears harder to pedal, and you're just spinning because you're out of the wind. We're either going to be in this time of difficulty, this time of deception, we're either going to be in this together or we're not. And my call, my challenge, my plea is that we would do this together. We ought to be praying as a church family as never before. We ought to be praying for Rick and Brenda in this time of transition. A lot of decisions to be made. Looking for opportunity for ministry. A lot of stuff. We need to be praying for them. We need to be praying for us, for our church family. We've got some challenges ahead of us. We've got some hills and some headwinds to face together. We need to be in this together. That needs to be our focus going forward. In the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the sadness, the the pain, the disappointment, whatever you want to throw into that, that pot right now, we need to do this together. What I'm drawn to ask you for is something that's difficult. What I'm drawn to ask of you is something that's not easy to do. And for some of us, it'll be impossible, and you will know who you are. But I believe it's not only a time for us to pray, but it's even an opportunity for us to provide focused prayer in a time of fasting. And kind of, my wife doesn't know this yet, so she's learning this for the first time. But I've decided that one day a week, I'm going to use my, my meal times where I would normally eat as prayer times. And I'm going to fast one day a week and make that a time of prayer. And I just feel led to invite you to join me in that. Will you commit yourself to prayer? Serious prayer. Real prayer. Will you commit yourself to whether it's one meal a day, whether it's a whole day, something, a time where you're sacrificing, giving something up to focus on prayer. Maybe for you it's not fasting a meal. You say, you know, I'm diabetic, I'm in poor health, if I skip meals, I have all kinds of health problems. Well, don't give up a meal, give up a TV show and spend that half hour, that 60 minutes praying. So fasting doesn't have to be food. Since I don't do television, I'll have to do food. That's not a good thing, but... um, Will you join me in that? That's, that's my prayer and my hope going forward. Lord, I've talked plenty long enough, and uh, I think I've said everything you wanted me to say. And so, Lord, my prayer is that we would be as Chewy started this out this morning. He reminded us 
We're going to build our lives on solid rock, the rock of your word. We're going to build our lives on that. And we're not going to be shaken by this storm, these hills, these headwinds. We're not going to be shaken. We're going to trust you together. We're going to follow you together. Our trust, our confidence, our faith is not in ourselves, not in our schemes, our strategies, our solutions, our confidence is in you. And so just like David, we cry out, Lord, help us. And we express with confidence, God is my helper. I'm so glad God's my helper, aren't you? And so, Lord, we do pray. We pray for Rick and Brenda in this time of transition. We pray for you to lead them, direct them, provide for them, meet their needs. Might they be encouraged as we gather on Sunday evening the night to say goodbye as we gather to uh, express our love, our appreciation for them. Uh, Would you just send them off with a spirit of, of ministry and even a spirit of joy in this headwind? And Lord, I pray for our church family. I pray for our our elders, our deacons, the leaders among us. For wisdom, for grace, for confidence. That they might be hearing your voice. Guard them, protect them from the schemes of the evil one. The lies of the evil one. Lord, guard all of us from those lies. Help us to be on guard, to be on watch. Help us to talk to each other about those lies, those deceptions. Lord, we want to follow you. And I'm convinced that you want to lead us more than we want to follow. And so, Lord, help us. We need your help. You are our helper. We need you to help us to follow you better. Help us to do that as we listen to your voice. Help us to listen to your voice and to do what you say. And we ask these things again in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
Megan, let's just sing it a cappella. How's that? All right, let's. It's because we don't have the capo. Where is the capo? I rebuke you, Satan. Yeah. <laughs> He's trying real hard today, isn't he? He doesn't want the gospel to be spread. But somebody's listening right now, right? A lot of people listening. So here we go. Let's get it. Oh, Lord. 
Thank you, church, for showing up this morning. Thank you for worship. You don't have to be seated. We're going to close. We're going to close immediately. I'm not going to take up any more of your time. That's a little warm I'm here, out here. But I'm so grateful to know that we serve a risen Savior. Amen, somebody. We serve a risen Savior. In spite of our inconsistencies, in spite of our failures, in spite of our transitions, and everything else we go through in life, as Pastor Roy talked about this morning, I'm so glad we serve a risen Savior. We can always depend on King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Anybody leaning on Jesus this morning? I don't know about you, but I'm leaning on Jesus more than ever before during these times. I'm leaning. I need Him. I need Him. I need Him. Bow your heads with me. Let us pray together. Father, we love You. We thank You. Father, we praise You so much. In the precious and mighty name of Jesus. We depend on you today, Lord God. We thank you so much for your word, for this message, Father, that you breathed upon us today. Thank you for the encouragement that we have received. Thank you so much for the inspiration from your word that we have received this morning as well, Lord God. We love you for it. We thank you so much for it. We cannot live without it. Lord God, I personally cannot live without your word in my life. Thank you for breathing that into me today, for helping me to hear and for helping me to understand and even more importantly, Lord God, for helping me to wrap my heart and my mind around your word today. It's going to get me to where, wherever it is you are leading me. I pray your blessings on us, Lord God, as we prepare to part from this place. Though not entirely, we thank you for the meeting that we have scheduled. Uh, soon after this, we pray your blessings upon that time. We pray that you may anoint that time, that you may inspire us, Father God, to conduct business as you would have us to do so. But may your blessings be upon all of us, Lord God. We thank you so much for it. In the precious and mighty name of Jesus Christ. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. If you are a member of this church, I encourage you to stick around for our business meeting. And we won't take too much of your time. God bless you guys.